Hello and greetings. Welcome to another edition of the Churches of the New Testament podcast in which we are exploring what we can know about the various churches described in the New Testament and apply their lessons of faith to us today. I'm Ethan. Very glad that you've joined us and thankful for this gift of time as we continue to explore these matters. And we have reached the point where we have discussed what we can know about the churches that are described in the New Testament to some length. There are other individuals to whom things are written that have things to do about the church, for instance, in um, Third John, Second John, perhaps, uh, but we don't know exactly to whom they're written, and we don't, in terms of which church, where they're at, and, and other circumstances going on. And so what we have seen so far has been what we can say about these various churches. So how then can we kind of wrap this up? How are we supposed to kind of bring it all together? And what we're going to try to do is we're going to look at the kinds of things God has approved, the kind of things God has condemned, and then trying to create a, a coherent picture of the kind of things that we should expect to see in the New Testament church. And we need to say from the outset when we do this, the one thing that we have learned, hopefully, as we've gone through and looked at all these different churches from Jerusalem all the way to Laodicea, is that there is no one New Testament church. There are all kinds of churches in the New Testament, groups of people with different things going on, uh, and so we need to humbly confess that and recognize that. And yet we can also see from all of these examples that there is kind of a coherent picture of the kind of thing God has approved, kind of things God has condemned, and a way forward for us. So we're going to begin with what God approves. And what we see, first and foremost, is that Jesus established that the church should be called the Ecclesia. This is the word used in Matthew 16, 18, and would be consistently used throughout for those who are in Christ. It is not the only term used, of course. There are other terms that are used to describe uh, the way, disciples, etc. But the idea of the church is something that we see over and over again. And, of course, this is the word Ecclesia. Um, the Ecclesia of God in 1 Corinthians 1 2, Ecclesia of Christ in Romans 16 16. Uh, this is the Church of God, Churches of Christ. Uh, so it's being described in terms of the one who possesses it. Um, and so the, the church that we use this term for is possessed by God in Christ. Now, the church is kind of a challenging translation in a lot of ways, since in the English, uh, church now means a building that people meet in for Christian worship and a Christian religious organization. Uh, but the New Testament term ecclesia means assembly. It doesn't mean called out. Uh, that's the der derivation, but by the uh, time of the apostles, the derivation was long in the past. It meant assembly. It did not refer to a building, does not necessarily refer to an organization. In fact, it can refer to all kinds of collectives of people. Just in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, we see the range of it. In verse 32, it's about uh, a riotous mob, and in verse 39, it's about the regular uh, political body that met in Ephesus to make decisions about the community. And in both of these, the term ecclesia is used. Uh, so that's the kind of range this term has. It has no inherent religious meaning in Greek. Um, but what it importantly is, is it refers to a group of people, a group of people either coming together uh, at one time, uh, or people who have a shared identity. And it's that last definition why English church is still an appropriate translation of this Greek ecclesia. So throughout the time that we've been talking, churches of the New Testament, church, everything else, this is the ecclesia, and the ecclesia that belongs to Christ. And when we look at how that word has been used 
throughout the uh, description of the churches and in, in Paul and Jesus and Peter and John's writings, uh, we can see that uh, there's different nuances and different ways that word ecclesia is being used. Um, and we often will make these categorizations of universal and local. We'll be very clear, the New Testament does not make these uh, explicit. They don't, It doesn't speak of the universal church or local church. But it is a requirement for us to understand how these words are being used. So in Ephesians 4, 4, Paul says there's one body, and uh, the body is the church in Ephesians 5, 22-33. And yet Paul writes to the church in Corinth, the church of Thessalonica, of course, the churches of Galatia. Uh, how can there be churches if there is only one church? And the way that we resolve this is understand that the way that the apostles conceived of the church was as a universal collective and local collectives. And there's some ambiguity because, again, the terms are not being used very strictly, and they're not used with any kind of categorization. But uh, we will look at what that means, and we can first see about the universal. And the universal is what we see when the apostles and others are talking about the church in a singular sense, especially relating to Jesus. So it's the church Christ establishes in Matthew 16, 18. It is uh, described as a body, a bride, a mix of the two, a temple, and a household in various New Testament passages. And the church is described primarily in terms of this imagery, that the church are those who belong to Christ, and they look to him as their head. And the idea of the body is it's in a functioning, that our bodies are interdependent uh, but independent parts, right? That we have individual parts of our body that work independently, and that's how things work. Uh, the household is the way that they relate as fellow brothers and sisters in the house of God the Father. And the idea of the temple is to demonstrate their sanctity, uh, because the Holy Spirit dwells in them individually and collectively, uh, and founded upon Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and the doctrines of the apostles and the prophets. And this is kind of helping us understand how that church is organized and how it runs. Uh, that we follow what G Jesus' lordship according to the apostolic teachings, even though they may be dead, they still speak in the words they have written for us. And that is important because they had the authority given to them, authority that was not continually passed down afterward. In many real ways, the universal church is an abstract collective. It is not yet assembled. It represents all those who are in Christ throughout time and place. And so there will be a glorious day when the Lord returns and it will finally assemble and it will be glorified and it will be a beautiful thing. And at that point, there will be no more need for anything else than the universal church. But until then, as we live in the time-space continuum, we're still in the now and not yet of the current moment, uh, we see that we have these local collectives of Christians that meet in various places. Because once the church, uh, Christianity should be spread outside of Jerusalem, there were disciples in many lands, and that Christians in various places would come together to build one another up and to strengthen one another. And... It's not just that, well, all of us are a part of the universal body, and we just so happen to be meeting in a given place and time. No, th these local bodies have definition. Uh, they have their own form of organization. And it's, in fact, that's why Paul tells the church in Colossae to have the letter that it has sent to it read in the church in Laodicea, and that the letter sent to the church in Laodicea should be read in the church in Colossae. So we can see that they saw each other as coherent churches, uh, both of them having some kind of unofficial relationship in Christ, but uh, as we're going to see, uh, not necessarily an idea that one has power over the other. Uh, because it's not exactly explicitly defined how the church is related to one another, 
um, and or how it relates to the universal church. To the universal church, it would seem that the local church is the embodiment of the universal church in a given place and time. Um, now, there are some people who may not be in the universal church yet, meeting in a local body. Uh, maybe some visitors. We can see in 1 Corinthians 14 that visitors may be in the assembly. There may be children, although the children are considered sanctified according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, but there might be some people who are really not in a good part place in their relationship with God, and if they were to meet God at that point, would not be saved, but yet are meeting with Christians. We get this impression from 1 Corinthians 5 and Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, so it's maybe not an exact one-to-one, -one, but the idea of the local church is that it should represent the universal uh, body, the Christians of a given place and time who meet together and build up one another. And when it comes to uh, working with other Christians, I mean, we have these metaphors of the body and things like that where we are to see that all Christians, no matter what congregation with which they happen to assemble, are building up the body of Christ together. But when it comes to local churches, the best we can conclude is they are autonomous relative to one another. We do not see any example of any individual church uh, presuming to speak a word or to maintain authority over another church. And the people who are given authority in the church, the elders, uh, are is very specific that they are made elders over the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, that they are elders of a church, they are not elders over churches. We can see in First Thessalonians and many other places that, yeah, Christians knew about Christians in other places, and there is probably an unofficial network of Christians throughout the Roman Empire and beyond, but that the connections there are unofficial, that there is not a uh, prescribed hierarchy or organizational uh, level between these uh, bodies of believers in various places and the universal church. Uh, all of them are under Jesus' authority. Jesus is Lord over all of them, and there's no room for any middle ground between uh, the universal and local church. Because these local churches did have organization. Jesus is their head. The apostles or authorities, even if not in person, through them what they have taught. But they're supposed to be elders in these churches. They're also called overseers and shepherds. We see this most clearly in 1 Peter 5, where Peter speaks as an elder among elders to oversee and to shepherd the flock that they have been overseers over. So that we have uh, those two ideas, and, and really that makes the best sense. Their men are older based upon qualification and, and situation in life, and they are able to oversee and administrate the affairs of the church, and they are to shepherd or guide or direct through example and lead by example uh, Christians in the right way. These men are able to appoint deacons to serve at their leisure, to uh, delegate various responsibilities and authorities. Uh, we also see these churches would have evangelists who would proclaim the gospel, uh, God's truth, both among Christians and those outside of faith. And that the baptized believers would identify themselves as part of the local church are its members. And these are very functional concepts, and they are functional in some they, they They exist to encourage, to provide uh, the needed work of God in various places. They were never meant to be eternal in and of themselves. Uh, we've already mentioned how many of the places where the churches in the New Testament exist would not exist forever. And uh, while there might be lamentation over the collapse of a given local church, the uh, Christians continue to meet in various places, and of course the day will come when there will be no more local churches, when we will all be part of that universal body. 
Well, we see uh, when it comes to who is in the church that the, the church is made up of individuals who are saved under the new covenant God has made through Jesus Christ and who are, who are Jesus's. And that's the important thing to get about the idea of the ecclesias and assemblies, people. The church throughout the New Testament is people, and the focus is always on people, not hierarchies, not institutions, not organizations. The focus is on people. Furthermore, all the Christians who are members of one another have the same standing before God. Uh, elders and apostles and evangelists and quote-unquote regular members, all of them have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of them have required forgiveness and redemption in Jesus. And all of them are going to stand before Jesus equally. And there may be roles and responsibilities, but that does not mean that anybody has any greater value than any other person. And so Christians are making up the churches. They are the church. They are the focus of everything, all the regular people. And the life and conduct of these people are what is constantly being addressed throughout all of these letters. All of the communication of the apostles are, are continually concerned. And this is part of the exhortation. The exhortations that were being made in churches are Jesus is Lord, this is what God has done in Jesus, and therefore this is what it means for us in the way that we're trying to live our lives. For the Christians in the New Testament, that would be in the various parts of the Roman Empire in the first century of this era. For us, it may be a very different place in a very different time, but the same types of principles apply. We are to serve God obediently. We are to uh, manifest the fruit of the Spirit and avoid the works of the flesh. We are to help those in need, especially those in the household of faith. We are to demonstrate our subjection to Jesus and that the way of life in Jesus is the way we are following and how we relate in our families, in our communities, at work, in every relationship and context in which we find ourselves. Christians are to love one another and their fellow people, to be humble, to consider the good of our neighbors over ourselves, to promote the gospel of Christ, defending that hope with gentleness and respect, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves, and thus that we demonstrate that it is not us who are really living, it's Christ living in us, as Paul says in Galatians 2 and in verse 20. And so, uh, the Christian, the individual Christian, is a member of the Church Universal and should be a member of a local congregation building up fellow Christians. And they are to uh, do that work in the body, both as uh, individuals working with others, but also in their own way in their lives. And this is how the Church works in the world. There's a lot of conversation in the world about how the Church is supposed to function the, the universal church is much more of an abstract concept, and it, it does have a function. It is all the Christians together, but we don't really see it working in the world in a very specific way. Uh, because in the New Testament, it is imagined that the function of Christianity is done primarily through the local church and in the lives of individual Christians. And so... It, we see that manifest in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, that the, the body, the singular body, is uh, framed and knit together through every whatever joint supplies according to the working of each part to make the body increase and in its building up of itself in love. So when Christians do this as individuals, when Christians do this in local congregations, when Christians reach out to fellow Christians in other parts of the country and the world, this is what's going on. And we do well to see that Despite what you may have heard, the, the function of the church in the New Testament is primarily inward. It is primarily the building up of itself. And this may seem strange. 
because the church is so much seen as this kind of force in the world, but we have to see what is generating that force in the world. We see that edification, you know, building of itself up in love there is a major part of it. Then Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, that we're supposed to consider how to provoke one another to love and good works, to not assemble our meeting together, but to exhort one another all the more as the day draws near. We need to come together and build up one another. And the assembly is the prime, the very obvious way in which we do that and the consistent way in which we do that. Coming together on the first day of the week to uh, break bread in the Lord's Supper, to provide a collection for the needs of the church and the work that we're doing as a church, lesson to be preached, uh, prayers of thanksgiving and for one another's needs, singing songs. Um, these were to be orderly and peaceful, and they were dedicating themselves to the word of God. And all these things are be done for edification, for building up in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, with a view of strengthening one another in the faith. And Christians would also come together for shared meals and being hospitable toward one another, and the New Testament expects that Christians love one another, spend time together, know each other like family, to be there for one another. Uh, Paul's concern that there's no division in the body in 1 Corinthians 12 is, is not nearly as much about do we agree on doctrines, although there certainly needs to be doctrinal agreement, but that the members have the same care for one another. That if there's division because you don't really have love within the group, then you have a problem. It's not for nothing that when Jesus says how everyone will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. That the idea is that Christians love one another and they're creating this countercultural community of acceptance, belonging, love, and care. Uh, a mutual aid society for certain, but, but, not, but much more than a mutual aid society. And that this, will, this is the way it will be attractive to others. Uh, because ultimately, if somebody is not in Christ, if somebody's not part of the people of God, they're alienated from the life in God, and they may find themselves eternally isolated from God. And so that is why the building up of the church is the primary witness to the world. And that is why when we see benevolence being done, that we need to make sure that we don't make too strong of a division between material and spiritual support. Uh, because uh, in 1 John 3, the idea that, you know, he says, Greater love hath no man that's laid down his life for his friends, but if you have the world's goods to your brethren, you do not provide for them. How does the love of God abide in you? Or even James 2, 14 through 26, the whole faith without works is dead thing. is not just kind of throwing shade at Paul. James's whole point is he's got people who see people in need, and they say, go, be warmed, and be filled, but do not provide the things actually necessary. That's faith without works. Therefore, we are to consider the needs of one another and make sure everybody has needs made, taken care of. And in fact, throughout the New Testament, the primary thing that Christians are, are collecting for are to take care of material needs of fellow Christians in the early church, in Judea, for widows, so on and so forth. But yes, the principle is there in First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 16 that families should be supporting one another, and especially widows in their households, so the church can help those who are widows indeed. That the church has finite resources, and the church is to be the support look, uh, a place of last resort. But it is certainly there to that end. It is true that the, the church has its role in evangelism, but the role of evangelism in the New Testament is primarily the support and encouragement of evangelists. 1 Corinthians 9.14, that those who work for the gospel ought to live by the gospel. And um, we see that churches would constantly provide support to Paul and others, would support those going out and doing the work of ministry. This is where the example of what John tells Gaius in 3 John is of such importance, where he encourages them, him to provide the needs for Christians coming who are preaching the word of God which would involve making sure they had um, lodging and to send them off with provisions.
This is very important. It's not as if the church cannot use its resources to help create materials and to provide means to facilitate uh, evangelism. But the primary thrust is the support of people, since God is about people and people relating to people. And so these are the things that the church are primarily involved in, which is, again, not necessarily what you always see out in the world, where the church will do a lot of things out in the, in the, in the world of social activism and things of that nature. And there is certainly a space for that for individual Christians and Christians working together, but the church is called upon to really focus on its own mission, and uh, it does not need to have the energy taken out of that mission by directing it to these other issues, no matter how worthy they are, because Jesus has given the church the most important and the greatest mission, which is to provide for uh, the salvation of souls and the uh, re relational unity uh, with God and with one another. And we see how that's been manifest in the various churches of the New Testament and how God approved of such things. We're again glad that you've joined us. Uh, love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. Uh, subscribe to us here where you found us. And we look forward to continuing, Lord willing, with what God condemns. And may the Lord bless and keep you until then. Amen.